All right. Well, as uh, as you know, we can't meet here next week, so uh, we'll figure out a place. But if anyone wants to host next week, uh, more than willing to go there. If you guys want to come to our place, that's cool too. If you got another idea, want to get a tent and have the big tent revival, circus seventy style, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever God wants to do, I'm down. Um, but as I was praying about uh, studying this week and was getting ready to get back into Genesis. Uh, I feel like the Lord said, speak on grace, speak on grace. And so the title of today's message is not Genesis chapter 9 or 10, uh, uh, where uh, Noah and his uh, family begin life again. Uh, hopefully we'll get there next week. But the title of today's message is, it's always been grace. It's always been grace. And I want you to think about grace today with me. Um, it's something that, you know, we hear a lot as believers um, the word grace, especially in our circles, it's uh, grace seems to be the defining character of uh, the movements of God that we're familiar with. But I, yet I don't think, you know, maybe it's just me, I don't think that we're really grasping the grace of God, at least in its entirety. I know I haven't. I know that we can spend all of our life trying to grasp at that. But what do you think when you hear that word, when you hear the word grace, what do you think? In church... You know, sometimes maybe we think it's what we get after mercy. Maybe mercy is one thing and grace is a better version of mercy somehow. It's bigger or better. Uh, maybe it's just the name of a church. Maybe you go to Grace Community Church. My neighbors go there. Fine church. Grace. It's a good name for a church. You know, I'd rather go to Grace Church than Judgment Church. Uh, uh, maybe you feel like this is Judgment Church. I don't know. <laughs> but the, uh, it, the defining, uh, I'm sorry, the definition of it is the free and unmerited favor of God. Even Google knows the definition of grace. It's manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Um, and yet I hear that, and yet I, I still don't necessarily understand it. Um, but in the world, maybe we think of simple elegance or refinement of movement. You know, a ballerina is graceful. Mia's been doing little ballet dances in her little tutu, and it's, it's, she's got grace, you know. Um, she's not a trained ballerina, but she's got grace. Um, I try and do it, not so much grace. Maybe it's someone's name. Maybe you know a grace. Maybe there's a grace you know. That's a good name. Uh, but it also means to do honor or credit to something or someone by one's presence. Like, oh, would you grace us with your presence? You know, maybe if you were tardy to class or showed up at school, and they'd oh, it's how nice of you to grace us with your presence this morning, Mr. Shanley. Maybe you were thinking that this morning as I was late. How nice of you to show up when we were here. <laughs> um, but again, I think I hear the Christian definition, and I get it theologically, I get it mentally, and I get the point of it, and I get the understanding of it. But maybe it's just me, but I think perhaps the last worldly definition, the verb that we just read, says it all uh, in perspective to God. That it is an honor and blessing to us, to each one of us, and all of us together here gathered at church, as his body globally, to have God's presence. I think that is grace. That it's his free and unmerited favor. It's the heart of salvation is that it's God in our place. That it's, that's the real blessing. That it's not a crown that we throw back to him. That he gives us a grace and a reward or something. Uh, but that, it's, uh, that the glory on our head would be knowing him in our heart. Um, it's been said that uh, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, we've all heard it. But what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to have God's riches at Christ's expense? I don't know. Maybe you can help me. What does it mean to have God's riches at Christ's expense? I mean, 
I kind of get it, but is that what God's really giving us through the cross, his riches? Is that what we're really seeking when we seek God's grace, is God's riches and his blessings? Are we seeking to have a handout? Are we seeking to have a reward when we seek grace? Again, you know, I don't know that maybe it's necessarily wrong to receive God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, we do, right? I mean, that's sort of a logical thing that happens. I mean, we all get to go to heaven. We all get to be his kids. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. So by inheritance, we're rich, right? But I don't know that that's the heart of it. I think that, you know, again, what do I know? Um, you know that. That's, that's right, exactly. Exactly, that's it. That's it. You can go home. That's the whole message. <laughs> Um, but again, my head gets it, but my heart feels distance from that. I hear that, and it doesn't touch my heart at all. My head, it, my head hears it, but it doesn't give me any comfort at night when I lay down. You know, is it like that bonus check we didn't do enough for, a paycheck that maybe we didn't do so well last week and we still get paid. But again, I think the grace of God is bigger than all of that. It's Jesus, like my mom said again. <laughs> I don't have to say another word. I'll let you guys go early. As they say, when a meeting goes short at work, we're going to give you a half hour back. We'll give you five minutes back. <laughs> I don't get to go home. I don't get it back. I'm still at work. Uh, but grace is not a work because it cannot be earned. It cannot be earned. And it's not simply what God gives us, but who God gives us. It's Jesus to us, married to us, made one with us. You know, Christmas is coming. Mia keeps asking when Christmas is. And we're talking about getting a Christmas tree on the way over here and things. Um, but you know, the word Emmanuel, the name for Jesus, Emmanuel, means what? God with us, right? We all know that. I think that that is grace, that God would really be with us. Because we're ugly. At least I am. I'm, let me talk about myself here. Don't get offended. Uh, but maybe you do need to get offended. We're dirty. We're deplorable. We're down and out. Without him, we're depressed. We're broken, we're bruised, we're beaten, we're rebellious, we're obnoxious. Some of you are like, yes, preach on, brother, that's you. <laughs> Self-loving, and we're disasters. I don't know about you, but I'm a disaster. You know, If my life is any semblance of being together, it's not because I put it together. Because that's my mom, that's where I was before I met Jesus, and even now there's, there's a difference, but if there's anything good, it's the Lord. And yet, despite all that, God desires to come and dwell in the middle of all that. You know, if you'd seen my room in high school, you would not desire to come and dwell in the middle of all that. I barely dwell in the middle of all that. I just ignored it. <laughs> but God desires to come and dwell in the middle of all that. And he doesn't dwell and leave us that way. He cleans us up. But he's not that rude guest who comes over and says, I can't believe your house is a mess and he gets it cleaned up. You know, it's not like Monica on the show Friends who can't stand a mess, but... He cleans it up, not necessarily for his benefit, but for ours. You know, he does it to serve us, not to make us feel inferior or dirty or self-conscious, but because he knows it's healthy for us, it's better for us. But when did grace come about? When did grace start? And maybe this is just me, but I think sometimes I think of it wrongly, like it's mercy 2.0. Like mercy came out. And then after a while, they realized, oh, well, we should come out with a new version of mercy, and we'll call it grace. Uh, where, you know, we get mercy is when we, we don't get what we deserve, right? Where, oh, I'm not going to punish you like I should. And grace is then on top of that, not punishing like I should, but then I'm going to give you an ice cream cone, like I've heard it said. But I think with that, for me at least, it feels like I'm saying that I was a good steward of mercy 
maybe, perhaps. So here's your reward, grace. You know, you understand mercy, so I'm going to reward you with grace. And yet, I don't think that's how it works. Or perhaps we think of it as an alternate to mercy, that God's up, up in heaven and he's got his porter. He goes, do I give him mercy or grace today, Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit goes, I don't know. Heads mercy, tails grace. Tails, oh, they get grace today. Oh, you get mercy this time. Oh, you get grace this time. Oh, you get mercy. You know, like, God's flipping a coin to see, you know, I think, some, I don't know about you, but that's sometimes what I feel like when I send him. Like, what am I going to get today, God? It's always grace. Even if I get mercy, it's wrapped in grace. Because I believe God always intended grace. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like, oh, Jesus came out, so now we've got to come out with grace. Because if we look at the history in the ages of, you know, we're not just in a special bonus round of history. You know, we're in the age of grace, it's been called, from the cross uh, until the rapture and the judgment. This is the age of grace. Before that, there was ages with the Mosaic Covenant, the, the law. But we even saw as we read Genesis that the law existed even before Moses. Noah was doing the sacrificial system. Uh, Adam and Eve were shown it in the garden. But again, I don't think grace was something that just came up by the New Testament writers who were looking for a new buzzword. For the church. Oh, we're the church now. We've got to have a new word, grace. You know, I think the church does that all the time, looking for a new buzzword. We don't need a new buzzword. We need to have this word. And I believe that just as the law was fulfilled by Jesus, and the law and religious practice of holy days and rites were a shadow, so too I believe grace is the fulfillment. That these things are just the shadow of grace. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or a new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things that come, but the body is of Christ. Again, like my mom said, it's Jesus. I believe grace and all these things point to grace because grace is the embodiment of Jesus in a sense. Again, I'm not trying to make the deepest theological message here, um, but I think it's more of a heart message. You know, Hebrews 10 1 through 10 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You have to remember you're a sinner every year because, oh, you've got to bring an animal again that's talking about. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when we cometh into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written in me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings for sin, you would not. Neither had pleasure in, which are offered by the law. Then he said, lo, I will come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, I believe that grace, again, uh, allows us to see the complete picture of God. And again, you know, I'm narrowing down to just grace today. I'm not saying, you know, there's all sorts of things in the Bible and concepts we need to, to look at to really get the full picture of God. I think grace is a good conduit for that. Um, because again, you know, I think sometimes we come to God and when we ask him for forgiveness or we take communion, it's almost like we're asking God to go back to the cross or offering that sacrifice again, that yearly sacrifice. But it was already all taken care of on the cross. Even before you came to know him, all your sin was taken care of on the cross. It was finished, he said. 
And so we're already in grace. When we come to him, we come to a throne of grace. And so as the Bible says, we may come boldly before the throne of grace because we don't need to beg him to do something else for us. We don't need to beg him to offer, to accept the sacrifice of communion, the sacrifice of repentance in a sense. We just need to come to him and that we do it that we might remember that it's been taken care of already. We might remember that he already forgave us. We might receive the forgiveness that we might feel separated from because of our sin. Because it's already been taken care of. He's already poured it out. Um, again, you know, we're talking about eternal things and temporal manner, and you know. But I think you get what I'm trying to say here. Because, like I said, grace, I think, is a more complete picture of God. Because God is not just mercy, but he's also grace. God is merciful, but he's also kind. He's also gracious. He's also compassionate. And I believe that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, it's not just goodness and blessings that we get from God, but we get the, his presence, his being there. And that's Jesus. He's the embodiment of grace. You know, we didn't earn him. We don't get him and put him on the wall like a trophy. We commune with him. We are surrounded by him. He lives inside us. We're uh, blessed by him himself. And I know we understand these things, but I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but I miss it. I'm going to share some quotes with you guys that have impacted me lately. And they're from uh, Oswald Chambers from Abos for His Highest. And it says, have we come to the point where God can withdraw his blessings? And I take that to be physical, emotional, perhaps even spiritual blessings. That God can withdraw his blessings from us without our trust in him being affected. How so are we tied to God's blessings for us? instead of him for us. And so when his blessings appear to disappear, we think God himself has disappeared. And that's not the case. It's never the case. The passion of Christianity comes from deliberately signing away my own rights and becoming a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Until I do that, I will not begin to be a saint. Grace allows us to sign our life away without fear, without worry that he's going to come after us one day if we mess up that he's watching over us with the proverbial baseball bat. Grace says, come give your life up to me. I've already forgiven anything you're ever going to do. You're safe here. Come to me. You know, like, give me your little chipmunk. We have these little chipmunks live outside. They don't understand that I'm not going to squash them. And so they run away. And I think sometimes we're that way with God. The men and women our Lord sends out on his endeavors are ordinary human people, but people who are controlled by their devotion to him, which has been brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's grace that God would use any of us. He doesn't have to. Romans clearly says creation speaks of his invisible attributes. We've got Bibles everywhere. He doesn't need you and me. His, someone will trip over a Bible. God will make it happen. He made it happen in my life. He doesn't need you or me. And yet, he loves you and me. And yet, he sends us out. Our Lord told us how our love for him is to exhibit itself when he asked, Do you love me? In John 21. And he said... Feed my sheep. In effect, he said, identify yourself with my interests and in other people, not identify me with your interests and in other people. And when we don't have a mindset of grace, we want to mold and shape people into the, what we think they should be. We judge them, we tweak them, we contort them in our minds and in their lives, and we try and shepherd them with a heavy hand to be what we think God should make them to be. And that's a burden. And yet grace says... When you, when you receive grace and you see others in grace, you realize, I want to help them. I want to feed them that they might not come to me for correction, but they might come to the Lord for instruction and that the Lord might truly feed them 
and raise them and turn them into the person that he wants them to be. Because I don't, I don't know you. I know you a little bit, and I know you a lot. But God's the one who made you. God's the one who knew you before the foundation of the earth. So who am I to judge you and say where you are on your path of glory? I mean, obviously, you've got to look at fruit, and, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a balance to that. I think you understand the heart of what I'm saying here is that we love each other, and we help each other become who God wants us to be, not who each other wants us to be. And how important is that even in an intimate relationship like marriage? Isn't that a picture of the Lord in us? Marriage? That God would change us gently? Uh, but we must also learn that our individual effort for God shows nothing uh, but disrespect for Him. When we try to do something for God without His leading, without His inspiration, without really Him doing it, we're supposed to be an empty vessel and He does it through us, it disrespects Him. You know, it's like I don't necessarily mean in the sense that like our heart is meaning to disrespect him, but when we go out in the world and we do something that we claim to be for God, and we go on our Christian jihad, so to speak, it disrespects him. You know, they don't know God, it just disrespects who they think God is, but when we go out and we beat someone up for Jesus, that disrespects God. They then think that's who God is. That's not who God is. The effect of sanctification in me is what? Obedience, service, and prayer, and is the outcome of inexpressible thanks and adoration for the miraculous sanctification that has been brought about in me because of the atonement through Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ. Oswald's pretty smart, so it's hard for me to follow along sometimes. But really, that if I receive grace, I'm naturally going to want to be obedient. I'm going to be obedient with joy. If I receive mercy, I may not have as much joy in my obedience. I may still be obedient and thankful, but there's not going to be that joy there. But when grace comes on us, what else can we do? God has been so gracious, so good to us. Why can we not, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Amen. I'm sure we could tie many threads through these, but I think that in some way each of these speaks of grace. Um, you know, in Daniel 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing for time. You can look at it later, 3.13 through 18 and 24.25. It talks about, this is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up this idol, and everyone's supposed to worship it when the band plays. And they don't bow down. And, um, and he calls them before his court, because they're ministers in his court. And uh, uh, he says to them, If you worship not, you shall be cast this very hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're, gonna, we're careful in our answer to you in this matter. You know that we're not trying to be disrespectful here to you. We're careful to you. We know that you're in power. But the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image that thou hast set up. And he gets furious and throws him in the fire and makes it hotter and the guards die. And then he sees them in there, and he says, um, I see four men walking around in there, and they were tied up, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the Son of uh, God, of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve and worship any god except their own god. That even the king's word was changed by God's grace, because they realized... Whether God shows up or not, we're in his hands. We're going to be delivered from the fire, or whether we die and go to heaven, or whether God pulls us out of this fiery furnace. And what is due? What happens? God shows up in the middle of that. They didn't make a bold claim. I'm naming and claiming that this fire ain't going to hurt me. They just said, King, do whatever you want. We know God is good, and whatever he does is right, even if it means we're going to die. 
and it changes the king's word. The king's word goes from bow down and worship me to forget that, bow down and worship God, the true God. They knew God was gracious because they knew they would be delivered to him either way. And grace is not just the physical blessing or even a heavenly blessing. You know, going to heaven, that's grace. You get to experience heaven for, uh, for eternity. But I think in some way that that's a selfish view, a limited view of grace. And I believe it's really a missed view of God. When we look at grace as just things that are given to us, just inheritance, and these things are good, that God wants to give us blessings, he wants to give us inheritance, he talks about it. I mean, he loves us. I love giving my kids gifts, but I also love hanging out with them, right? I love them to have those things. I, you know, deep part of me wants to buy a house so that they have inheritance one day. You know, it's nice of a house. They won't want to keep it or whatever. Have a piece of land. But we'll see what God does. But that's the heart. I think that's the heart of God to do those things. But when it's just those things in our view, and I think a lot of times in, you know, the church, not any church particularly, but I feel like there's this air in the church that's always just about getting what we want. We miss God. We get this view of grace that's so myopic that we don't realize that it's bigger than that. That if we lose this blessing, grace is still there. God is still there. You know, we point out things to the kids in the car. You know, like, hey, look, there's cows over there. There's horses over there. There's guys fishing. And sometimes they'll see it. Sometimes they'll go, where? I'm like right there. And they go, where? I can't see it. And, you know, either like the pillar's in the way or they just didn't look fast enough or they looked out the wrong window because, you know, left and right is still like, they're still getting a grasp on that. <laughs> Me too. Um, but I think sometimes it depends on where they're sitting. Isn't that the same for us with grace? It depends on where we're sitting. And I ask, you know, myself as well, but where are you and I sitting this morning? I don't mean in Noble Roasters and Campbell Hall, but where are you sitting? Luke 10, 38 through 42 says, Now it came to pass, as they went, and they entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. That word cumbered is perispao. I think of the spire. I don't know if it comes to that or perimeter. Just, you know, I think of these root words. But animals will be tied and walk in a circle threshing grain. You know, you ever seen that picture of donkeys going around and pushing the mill? Uh, you know, uh, and Samson did that. And I get that sense from this word. That's not what this word means, but I get that sense because the word means to draw around, to draw away, or to distract. It means to be driven about mentally or to be over-occupied or too busy about a thing. And that's an animal. They're just distracted, going around. They're not getting anywhere. They're just treading out the grain, and that's an animal's job. And that became Samson's job at one point when he took advantage of God's grace in his life. He became that animal, threshing around those things. It goes on uh, in Luke. It says, uh, and they came to him and said, Lord, Mary came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bitter, therefore, to get up and help me. Like, Mary will get up. Jesus, you tell her to get up. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And I know we've heard this story all the time, but how often are we too busy about a thing of God or what we think is of God? And we're so busy and so heavy. And oh boy, I, you know, like, you're just, no, I, I, I can't help you. I've got to go sweep the carpet or whatever. But Jesus says, you're so busy. Mary's chosen the needful thing. I don't, Jesus doesn't need his carpet clean. He doesn't need, you know, four-course meal. 
just wants to sit down then. And what did Mary do when she sat down? She heard his word. Martha couldn't hear what he was teaching. Maybe she heard it from a distance, you know? Uh, my wonderful wife, Ashley, always gets to hear from a distance because she's taking care of the kids, and that's a blessing, but that's a good thing. But in the same sense, like, I think when we're busy about things that aren't needful, aren't truly needful at the end of the day, we miss God's word. And I'm not saying don't serve. I'm saying don't miss out on God's word. You know, last night we had, we had a bunch of people over yesterday. It was a great party. It was some of the best fellowship we've had in a long time, and it was it's fantastic. It was just... You know, God working and moving, and I was sharing with my daughter about fellowship and things and how that's just as important as worship and word. Um, but Jacob was getting his teeth brushed by mommy and I and Alicia, and uh, there's tons of, it wasn't tons of stuff, but there's stuff I needed to clean up. And Mia was on the couch, and she's tired, and she's like, Daddy, would you come sit with me? And I thought, I need to clean stuff up, but I haven't seen my daughter all day. The mess will still be there. I'm going to go sit with her, because that time was more important. I missed her. A couple times through the day, I was like, Mia, come here. Let me give you a hug. I haven't given you enough hugs today. You know, like, and that little time was important. Because the mess will be there when she's asleep. It's a more needful thing for me to get that moment with her and uh, with Alicia. But when we're busy for the Lord and we miss the Lord, the being busy for the Lord is never for the Lord. You get that? When we're, bu- we're so busy that we miss God, we're not doing it for God. I think most of the time we're doing it for ourselves. We think it's our responsibility or it's up to us to keep something going or keep something propped up. Or... But keeping the mill turning is not our responsibility. Keeping the grain growing is not our responsibility. You know, a watched pot never boils or it says, I don't know, I've boiled water twice in my life. No, I'm kidding. I used to cook pasta all the time. But I can't make it. I can just turn it on and wait. I hope I'm not in Denver or, or whatever. Was it boil faster at higher altitudes? I don't know. I don't remember. But uh, in first, uh, was it First uh, Corinthians three four through seven? I think that's a reference. It's Co. But for a while one says I'm a Paul and another I'm Apollos. Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who then is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that waters. Paul says, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. It doesn't matter who teaches you, where you receive it from. I mean, it does, but it does, the person is not the big deal. It's God that gives the increase. You know, yes, we're going to have a reward in heaven. If you read on, there's a reward in heaven for doing the things of God and doing them well and being obedient and those things. So I'm not negating that there is a reward at the end of the day. Um, but again, that reward is Jesus. And I believe that reward is those in heaven who really were ministered to by the Lord through us. That's the reward. But God's the one who really does the work, Paul is saying. It's not me. It's not Apollos. It's God. He's the one who gives the increase. Paul says, I can water all day. Apollos can plant all day, and nothing will grow. You can't make it grow. You know, what a farmer does, he just goes out and plants, he tells the land, he makes sure that everything's correct and right and good, but at the end of the day, you can have a good season, or you can have a bad season. And our real job, our real ministry, is to sit at the feet of Jesus every day and hear his word, hear his voice, hear his heart, and get to know him. I don't want to show up in heaven and not know Jesus. More than that, I don't want to show up in heaven and not go, I never knew you. You're too busy doing something that was not for me. You said, Lord, Lord, I'm doing it for you. And God goes, I don't know you. How can you do something for me if I don't know you? And how can we do something for God if we don't know his heart on something? 
Oh, the town needs this. My neighbors need that. My family needs this. My job needs this. I need this in my life. This. But how do we know what they really need? We don't know them. We don't know the heart issue. We don't know the deeper issue going on. If someone comes to you angry, you don't know why they're really angry. And you pray, and maybe God will give you the right soft word to give them. I don't know. I know. It's just, I don't always do it. Sometimes it's the flesh gets up because it's easier to be fleshly than it is to be spiritual. But you think about Levitical offerings. You know, some required part of it to be burnt, some of it to be eaten. That uh, I was trying to look it up, but uh, I couldn't find it last night. But I remember when I was reading Leviticus and uh, all the books of the law in the past that there was an offering where the priest would come and he would offer some to the Lord and he would eat some in the presence of God. That what did God really want for these offerings? Not a burnt cow, not necessarily a sweet aroma, but fellowship with his people. <coughs> Communion? That's what God wants. He just wants to remember him, that fellowship. Man, Jesus, I remember you. I remember where I was. That you know, There's a song I was singing the other day that I heard that I'm you know, thinking about where you were before you knew Jesus or when Jesus found you. And look at what God has done. Like, I look at my family and my kids and I go, look what God has done. I didn't do that. If it's messed up, I did that. But if anything's good and right and healthy, then it's God did that. I couldn't hold down the fort. I can't even hold down the fort now. I still can't. And that's grace. I didn't learn anything. I just learned to let God just a little bit. And I need to learn to let him even more. And that's grace because God doesn't rush me. And God will never rush you. That's not grace. Grace said he might prod you a little bit and try and get you to come on, you know, if you're slagging a little bit because he knows you can do better at this point, but he doesn't rush you. Because God gives the increase in your life and in mine and in the ministry. And if there's no increase, is God doing the work? And I don't mean increase in numbers because in America we look for numbers, meaning that God's doing the work. You can get numbers for all sorts of things. If we had nobles on right now, we'd have numbers in here and maybe they'd hear the gospel and a sneering look and stay for a minute, but that's not the numbers God is looking for. You know, we talked about that last week. You know, yes, we can run around, we can do things, we can keep things going that appear to be godly to some and maybe even to us, but that is not God's work. That is not a substitute for God speaking his word, and then not returning void by the work of the Holy Spirit. But if we don't sit and let him, how can we see the increase? How can there be increase if we never sit underneath the spout where his glory comes out? I think that's what Pastor Chuck just said. But the Holy Spirit is the one doing the real work. If we're not spending more time sitting than we are serving, I believe we're just getting in the way. So I'm going to go home now and take us here. But, uh, <laughs> But we're just getting stuff done that's not as important at the end of the day. It doesn't have as much or any real lasting eternal value. The carpet will get dirty again, but what's that person prayed for? They'll leave. The carpet will still be there. Put it down. You've got to sit down. I know that's a word from the Lord today for all of us, but you've got to sit down. And that's not a disciplinary, like... Jacob, get off the couch, sit down. Stop jumping on the couch. Maybe it is, I don't know what you're doing. But it's God saying, sit down. You gotta sit down. But have we literally sat at the feet of Jesus lately? Have we sought him in a message? When you come here, I'm sure you're like, God, please speak to me because I don't know how you're speaking through this guy. But 
In your personal time, do we seek Him? When we open the Bible, do we seek Him or do we just read it? And I know we all fall into that. You know, Ash will share with me. It's like there's times I've fallen into that and lately I've just been like, no, I'm going to go back. God, I want to see what God, I'm, I'm going to spend more time and, and not miss this. I don't want to miss this. We don't want to miss this. We don't want to miss this. We want to be married and receive it. But have you lately or even ever, literally, just sat on the floor? If your back is bad, sit on the corner of your bed. I don't know. Even if your back is bad, maybe just sit on the floor. And that will minister to you. God will use that to minister to you. But sit at his feet in worship, in prayer, in study, or even just in the quiet. I'm not saying you have to sit, you know, every day. But if you can, it's better. I know it's better. We know it's better. There's days you get up and barely have time for devotional. And I get in my stairs and I commute to work, <laughs> you know. And while my computer boots, I'm like opening the Bible, you know. But the days that I make time, more time, it's better. It's better for me. It's better for others. We know that. But if not, if you haven't recently, and if not yet today, Please sit. Take a load off. First Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care, and that care is anxiety. Casting all your anxiety upon him, he cares about you. He's not anxious over you. He cares for you. You're anxious. Read to him. You know, do you get that? Do I? That even in this selfish act of wanting to get rid of our anxiety before the Lord... Casting our cares, our problems, our worries, our burdens on him, our work on him, our ministry on him, or what we think is our ministry, or what we've been doing, what we think has been ministry. We do it because he cares for us. I get care in return for giving up my anxiety. You know, talk about free health care. I'm anxious. Here, oh, here you go, Lord. You know, uh... I wonder that we might not even need to see that doctor. I'm not saying don't go to the doctor, but I wonder if we did these things, would we need to see that doctor? Would we not need maybe that last medication we got? Well, we might just get some sleep tonight. And what did you do to earn that time with doctors? You just, did you pay your healthcare bill? <laughs> I, I can't. Nothing. He just says, the door's open. I'm here. Please come sit. I don't want to bless you. And I think that's grace. We don't have to do anything. Just have to sit. Isaiah 61. If you would turn there with me. Please. To be gracious enough to do so. Isaiah is speaking this, and we know that Jesus picked this area of scripture up when he was in the temple. And it says in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God, he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, and they shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, 
the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth. I will make them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's grace that we get back here in uh, verse uh, end of two. It says, "The comfort all is more to uh, sorry to give them beauty for ashes." We give God burn up ash, nothing worth it, and God gives us beauty. We get joy when we bring to him mourning. We get a garment of praise when we feel like we've just been clothed with the spirit of heaviness. And God makes us righteousness. And, you know, he gives us, says that they're going to rebuild the old things. That God is not going to rebuild his works. God is not going to pour out these things. And, you know, he's pouring out his spirit, but it's got to come through us. And we've got to trade in our sorrows, like that song says. I'm trading my sorrows. You know, I'm, you know, you know how that song goes? But sincerely, that's what it means. Like, God's going to do that, and praise is going to come, and revival is going to be here because it is here. God's poured it out. It's here. It's already pouring down. It's like, are we willing just to take a drink of it, you know, or are we trying to work up our own, you know, juice somewhere? <laughs> but grace, what can you do, and what can you do well? Like I said, we can't do anything well. We can just trade in our sorrows, so do that well. Trade in your pain for peace. Do that well. Trade in your brokenness. To be made whole. Do that all the time. That's the thing that we can do well for God is give him all that we have, all that we care about, all that we worry about, all that we're happy about. You know, I made this awesome deal with Joe and Boardwalk for a monopoly yesterday where somehow I didn't have to pay him the $1,500 anytime I landed on his properties. I just paid him 50 bucks. I gave him a free pass on the railroad. You know, it's like this great deal. We both kind of got something for free and I never landed on Boardwalk. You know, I worked up this great deal. I thought it was like the deal of the century, and I just kept landing on luxury tax. Uh, you know, that's, that's us. We try and work up this great deal with God, and we just kind of, you know, we don't get what we're thinking because we're, we're, we're missing out on the bigger deal. The deal wants to give us in anything and everything is that we might be close to him. And that all of it, no matter what we're doing, we might be close to him. That's it. That's where God wants you to be. He doesn't want you to be out back mowing the lawn right now. He wants you to be close to him. Later on, you can mow the lawn. And that, maybe that's for me. <laughs> but it's not even a one last time. But it's one thing to give God stuff that weighs us down. But can you really do anything that's good? I mean, we know this. You know, Romans 7 talks about, uh, For that which I do allow not, for what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that's what I do, Paul says. Paul, Paul people says, what I hate, that's what I end up doing. All I do is what I hate. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me. I, I want to. God's Spirit makes me want to. 
But how to perform that, which is good, I find not. I can't do it on my own, Paul says. And he goes on in verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, and Paul says, I thank him through, through Jesus Christ. That Paul knew that in and of himself, he couldn't even thank God on his own. That when we come to God and we give him thanks, it's through Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one that allows us to thank God for anything. Because if Jesus didn't make the sacrifice for God, for us, for God, we'd have no way even to thank him. God couldn't hit God's like, you're in sin, what are you thanking me for? You haven't done anything, you know, there's a separation there. Eternal separation, hell, like, you can't come across this divide, guys. There's no making your way across, and then Jesus just kind of made the way a little bit easier. There was no way across. That's grace. There's nothing I can do. Jesus does it all for me, even thanking God. Because Jesus thanks God on our behalf. Jesus prays for us. He sings over us. He's our great high priest. He's our mediator, the one who goes to God and says, You see my, see my guys? You see how great they are? You see how much I love them? You know, if God was honest in a way, you go, yeah, I see them. <laughs> are you sure you're talking to the same people here? He goes, he knows, because he sees. That's grace. You know, Jeremiah 17 talks about a heart being deceitful. It's wicked. But God knows. And God says we won't be ashamed if we turn to him. And verse 14 says, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. That when we praise God, he's our praise. He inhabits the praise of his people because... That praise is him in a sense. You know, it's like we're just giving thanks for him being him and in his presence. You know, the Lord is the one who healed us. You know, Romans 5 uh, talks about, For we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We know these verses, but for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than... Being now justified in his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It goes on um, in verse 11. But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And go on in verse 17. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. That all these things are through Jesus Christ. You know, Philippians 2 talks about Jesus descending. He gave up his throne in heaven. He became a man. They became a servant, and he obedience to the point of death on the cross. And what did the enemy do? And Isaiah, you know, I heard a message about this later. The enemy tried to ascend. Who will ascend? I will ascend. I can become greater than God. And it's got me thinking, as I was thinking about it, uh, a thought came into my head about the real estimation of the enemy's former role. Imagine we're all in heaven right now, right? Imagine that's God's throne. I mean, we really have to imagine, because that's not his throne. Are you going to worship God? Do you need anyone to tell you to worship God? Do you need anyone to lead you in worship when God is right there? Glowing, fire, thunder, emeralds, angels, bowing, saints. No. And yet somehow we think the enemy had this great role. And I get that, you know, there needs to be a role in worship and you need to be able to play the instrument properly and that helps sometimes, but that's not the prerequisite. It's the spirit of God. So we think, oh, the enemy had this great role and he fell, but really the estimation, he had, a, he had an estimation of himself that his role was greater than it was. God didn't really need anyone to lead in worship. We just worship it. When God, when God shows up, we worship. I think sometimes we have the false, the same way, the false estimation of the importance of our work. 
that I need to aspire to do something greater for God, that I need to do this for God or he's not going to get the glory. And, and there's a balance with obedience. If God's told you to do something, don't get me wrong. But really, you don't need me to teach you the word of God. I mean, in some sense we do in this life, God says in, in heaven we're not going to need to teach everyone his brother. But we've got the Bible. We've got the Holy Spirit. Like it says, you don't need anyone to teach you. You've got God to do the primary teaching in our lives. And again, there's a balance. I don't want to go off on like a, a narrow tangent and form a cult there. But sincerely, I think sometimes we think the pastor is it. The worship leader is it. Those who are serving is it. And it's a lesser job than we realize because if we would just come to God and sit at his feet and bask in his grace, it wouldn't matter if the worship was bad. It doesn't matter that the lyrics were wrong or that I'm playing off a sound bar or I got off a Best Buy and that's not a real good, you know what I mean? Like God's spirit is there. It doesn't matter. I mean, granted, it helps, but, you know, if you're really seeking God, you're able to worship there. I mean, they do that around the world. I think I heard another message and um, talking about China and how they're persecuting all these things. And then uh, they were asking about Church in America, and uh, the pastor was saying, well, in America, you know, people will come to a church, and it's kind of a strange thing. You know, like, if the worship's not so good, they'll go to another church where the guitarist is better or teachers not quite what they like they'll go down the street and find someone that's funnier or whatever and they like all burst out laughing like hysterically laughing and he was not trying to be funny and he was like kind of like you know when you laugh along uh-huh. like what are we really doing guys like, I understand going down the street and finding a church that teaches the word of God that's like we're in a famine in America and you find a place that teaches the word of God but more than that is the spirit of God there I think there's places that teach the word of God but are missing the spirit of God there's something wrong. There's something missing. There's something broken. And it's not necessarily the children's ministry doing something wrong. It's not necessarily, you know, in that sense, maybe there is. I don't know. But the key is, it's God's spirit there. And maybe it is, but maybe God's spirit is just saying to you, I've got something else for you. I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't want, you can't just make these general statements all the time. But sincerely, God's spirit's got to be there. And it's going to be there in holiness. His word is going to work. And there's going to be holiness in the leadership. There's going to be holiness in the practice holiness and fellowship it's never going to be perfect that's going to be there and I think in America we say well we substitute holiness for flashiness or pleasure or what we like or what we don't like or a better meeting time he said but we just need to desire to seek him first that's the role of any pastor or any worship leader it's not to get you to, to come to them but come to Jesus you know if at the end of my days, no one came to Jesus and they all just came to me, then that was a waste. And I don't think that's going to happen because it doesn't work that way. But that we desire him first, we seek him first, and then we seek advice, then we seek counsel, then we cast any remaining cares, if there are any, on others who do seek him first. And when you cast your cares on the people, make sure it's the right people um, who are seeking him. Because otherwise, you know, it's not good. But we can never be an answer to their prayers or our prayers or their needs or our needs unless God accomplishes it first. You know, the need itself is not our duty. The need is God's duty, the Holy Spirit's duty. Our duty is just to be available to the Holy Spirit to use us when and where he chooses. And it may not be where you think it would be. It may not be where you see the need. You may just need to pray about the need and God says, don't worry, it's not your burden. You may still pray about it, but perhaps it's not something that you take care about. Maybe it's just prayer. Maybe 
prayer is the only thing that's going to get it done, and you getting involved is going to make it worse. It's going to make something last longer than it should, or it's going to push someone away, or cause, you know, cause division, or whatever it is. But I think a lot of the times when we feel like we're the answer, we're the most needed thing, or needed person in a situation, we're in fact the least needed in that situation, or in that person's life. They think they need you, and they may in some way. My kids need me, my family need me, and I can say, oh, I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, they need me, that's my responsibility, I'm their dad, I'm their husband. But primarily, I need to go to Jesus first to be able to meet their needs. Otherwise, it's not really meeting their needs. It may look like it first season. And I believe we fail, not when we try to let God do it, not when we try and do what we believe God is showing us to do, you know, God's going to work all those things out. You look back in life, you realize, I failed at everything. God, why are you giving me a crown? I failed at everything. You did it all. If there was anything. But when we try to do it, when it's not our place, or we haven't seen what God is doing first. When we see a need and we say, oh, I know what to do to meet this need, but we haven't said, well, God, what is your real answer for this need? Now, maybe we want to give a word of correction, but God says give a word of grace. Or we say we want to keep giving grace, but God says... It's got to be a different season in their life in your relationship with them now. And, and we really, um, we fail. when We don't let God do the work. We fail. We have to let him do the work. Because he's the only one who can do that work. And like that quote said before, we dishonor him. We disrespect him. When we say, God, I can do your work instead of you. Because who said that first? Yeah, I can be God. I can ascend up there. I can take care of it. I'm not saying that we necessarily willfully think that in a way. But I think that... Deep down, if we're honest, that's what we're really doing. Because we can only be an empty vessel. The Holy Spirit loves to fill an empty soul. And that's grace. He must increase, but I must decrease, as it says in John. You know, the work of Jesus on the cross grants us that grace. Well, then how much grace is it, as we get here, as we close? How much grace? Is there a limit to the grace of the cross? Or is it limitless? And I think there is a limit. And I think there is, it is limitless. I think there's a limit to the effect of grace on a life not motivated to repent or sit at the feet of God by that grace. You know, like Samson, he kept doing what he was doing, and God was gracious, and eventually, whoop, get this gone, Samson, it got a little too far. But I think that there's no limit to the fruit, the fellowship, or the freedom that's within the bounds of grace that grace itself provides. When we're in the middle of grace, it's limitless. But when we begin to abuse grace, it dries up. You know, we talk about greasy grace. You know, they give too much grace over here or there. You know, uh, like it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Shall we continue? Paul says in Romans 6. He says, heaven forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? If you're saying you've got God's grace in your life, how can you keep eating the slop? How can you keep willfully turning to the slop? I'd say, you haven't received grace. You've put on the t-shirt that says grace because it's got you something. But like I talked about before, it's not about getting something. It's about getting him. It's about being with him. You know, I believe that grace makes it easy to lay our lives down. It's that green pasture that we can come and sit and know that God's going to take care of our needs and not take care of something that we think needs to be taken care of because it's, if he wants it to work, he's going to make it work. He doesn't need us to do it. You know, like, I knew that if God was calling us out of Maryland, that God was going to take care of the work down there, and that someone else came in. And, you know, right or wrong, you know, the point is, I knew God would take care of it, and, and he did. 
but we fall, we all fall short. But that doesn't mean we allow ourselves to keep tripping up in it. But the thing about grace is that when we do trip up in it, we have an advocate. We've got our lawyer. We've got our father. We've got our friend. We've got Jesus. We've got a God who's for us and never against us. And I believe that that's special in all creation. You know, angels uh, perhaps are not redeemable because they're not the same as God. You know, we were made in God's image. In In a sense, they exist outside of grace. And I don't want to get too deep in this because I can't build something out of that. But they all saw God's grace being exhibited and some rebelled. And, and we've all seen God's grace being exhibited in this age of grace. Let's not rebel. Let's just stay in grace and stay in it. You know, there's people who openly put the cross to shame that says, Paul says, I don't even know if they can repent, or Peter. And it's like, man, if someone's experienced grace and then they turn back, what, what else is there? There's nothing left. You know, there's nothing left that's going to fix that other than, you know, they have to turn back. We either let God marry us or we don't. God wants to marry you and I. And that's the end of the relationship. It's either, hey, come be with me. And we do. Or we don't. <coughs> you know, we're meant to be his reflection. His, his bone of his bone. Flesh of the flesh in some sense. And, and that's grace because we're dirt. God, you know, we read it. God took some dirt. Breathed on it. He said, hey, Adam. You know, you're man. You're my image. I love you. You know, Philippians 2, you know, talks about Jesus who humbled himself, became obedient to death. You know, and that's that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just like we read in Genesis, you know, Noah found grace where? In the eyes of God. That when Noah looked into God's eyes, what did he see? What did he find shining through? grace freely you have received freely given this world needs grace the church needs grace you and I need grace we need it in our relationships with each other it's the only way this is going to work guys and I don't mean this but I mean Christian life the church it's a whole the only way it's going to work is if we're gracious with each other we forgive each other we forget if we uh it's the glory of kings to, to pass over a matter. You know, someone sins against us, we cover it up. You know, not that we cover it up like uh, uh, Hollywood or political scandal, but that we, it's okay. You know, it's okay. Why? Because God does that for us. And that's the good news. That's grace. You know, a lot of times we say the good news, like, you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. And yes, that's the good news. But the good news is that you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. And I hope that they see grace in your eyes and my eyes when we share the gospel. And I hope that I give you more grace. And please, I need more grace from you. But sincerely, that when we go to sit before the feet of God, what do we expect when we see, when we look at his face? Do we expect grace? Because we should. Because that's how he's looking at us. He's not looking at us with judgment. He's looking at us with love no matter what we've done. Amen? Amen. Uh, Father, thank you for this time together, and God, thank you that we could sit at your feet, and that hope that even in a little bit of this, God, that you could speak to us and minister to us and let it resound with us, and let us just sit with you. And if there's things we're doing that we need to give up doing, bad things or good things, God, let's, we give them up now. If it's unclear what, what you're asking for us, then good. Then let's just come and sit and not worry about those things and just receive your grace, God. Thank you for that. 
Thank you, Lord. May you give us the grace to go and do what you've asked us to do. And that others might receive that grace, not from us, but from you. That they might really meet you and really encounter you and really be changed by you and really inherit uh, the promises of you. Thank you, Lord. Bless my family here today. In Jesus' name, amen.